Hey, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to the Biblical Genetics. I'm coming to you today from Orphan Brigade Park in Dallas, Georgia. My primary filming location yesterday didn't work out so well. I had this great idea. I was going to go to uh, Tallulah Gorge, where I've been. It's been like 30 years since I've been there. It's a beautiful park, lots of waterfalls. It was a Monday morning. It was cold. I figured there wouldn't be a lot of people there, and I was right. There was hardly anybody there until I set up my camera. And I got five minutes in, and sure enough, some people came down the stairs of doom and walked down to the the place where I was. So I stopped recording. They asked me to take their picture and I did. And then over the next hour, one person, two people, family, a couple, just one after the other, but they're all spaced apart. So I get set up, I start recording for a couple of minutes and here comes another person. And I couldn't stand there and record in this beautiful location because they just walked down this horrible staircase to go see this waterfall. And that would be unfair for me to say, you can't come and see this little waterfall that I was enjoying so much. So I packed up and I am um, walked up the stairs of Kirith Ungol. And after I was up the top, by the way, it's a Tolkien reference for you Tolkien nerds. Um, by the time I was at the top, I was in no condition to find an alternate filming location. So I just took the two hour drive and came home. And today I came to this lovely location to talk to you about the genetics of the Ark. That is the genetics of people, clean animals, unclean animals on the Ark, and the animals that were not, and the other species that were not on the Ark. And each one of those things gives us a different puzzle. Gives us different uh, parameters. Gives us different possibilities of what could be true and not true. And it's fascinating when you look at this. In fact, there are X chromosomes, there are Y chromosomes, there are mitochondria chromosomes, and the uh, autosomes all give you different pictures, except the range of possibilities in the biblical account are so large that it's really hard to look at something today and say, aha, that demonstrates the Bible is true, and that demonstrates evolution is not true. Because all sorts of possibilities could be true in the creation model. The, the range of our predictions is, is so large that really we can fit almost any data in, in this stuff that we're talking about into the biblical picture. For example, the unclean animals came in pairs, one male and one female for each unclean animal. Okay, that's fine. But those unclean animals, therefore, have a Y chromosome atom and a mitochondrial leaf because there's only one male and one female. And yet when you look at the things alive today, you know, all the cats in the world have to go back to one Y chromosome and one mitochondria, but how much diversity would you expect amongst the cats? Well, that depends upon their mutation rate and that depends upon their specific uh, reproduction rate and population size and their particular DNA repair systems built into cats. So I don't know how that affects genetics, that we, we can have a huge amount of diversity or a tiny amount of diversity. It depends. Likewise, the clean animals, they came in, in seven pairs. And yet, clean animals tend to be farmed in flocks that are inbred. And so, even though there was more individuals, that's not necessarily true. There'd be more diversity after the fact. I don't necessarily know how Noah understood what a clean animal was, because we're not given... The difference between clean and unclean until the law under Moses more than a thousand years later. But somehow, assuming there's some continuity between Noah and Moses, I mean, we knew that um, in Cain and Abel's day, uh, they understood the, the, um, the importance of a blood sacrifice compared to a, a plant sacrifice. So, you know, Cain was, was disfavored by God and Abel was favored by God because of that. And so we, they understood substitutionary atonement. They understood something about clean. And so let's just say cows and sheep and goats, some clean animals, are clean. 
but also we're given the fact that seven pairs of birds, each kind of bird, I don't think each species of bird, so seven pairs of raptors, seven pairs of finches, seven pairs of woodpecker type birds, you know, different categorizations and major classifications of birds are on the ark. So the amount of diversity depends upon clean and unclean and a lot of factors that we can't know. We just don't know the genetics that were in the background behind the animals that were selected. So actually, and sadly, because I was really hoping that this would be true, but you can't look at the genetics of modern organisms and say, oh, that's clean, that's unclean. Or, oh, that means there are this many organisms on the ark versus that many organisms on the ark. We might be able to tease out some of this, but not a lot because, I mean, it's been 4,500 years since this whole entire Noah's Ark scenario, and therefore um, things have gotten a lot complicated. Now, you can look at the mitochondria specifically of living things. In fact, Nathaniel Jensen over at Answers in Genesis, he's done the most work on this and um, brilliant work looking at all these different animals and that are grouped and saying, look at that. Here's how many mutations separates, like, you know, all the cow-like animals or all the deer-like animals. And um, interestingly, it's about the number of mutations you would expect given population bottleneck to about 4,500 years ago. He's also done work looking at the mutation rates that we can estimate in living things and saying, well, if these things came from a common ancestor 4,000 and a half years ago, here's how much mutations you'd expect to see in this group. But if they came from a common ancestor in the evolutionary model hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years ago, depending on which group you're looking at, well, here's how much genetic diversity you would expect. And it turns out that time after time after time after time, he showed that there's only this much genetic diversity is right within the error bars that the ex expectation of the biblical model. So there are some things that point straight at the Bible. Other things you can't know. And we have to be able to separate them when we're talking about the genetics of the flood and the genetics of organisms on the ark. Now, as far as the organisms not on the ark, then all bets are off. Depending on how much genetic diversity was in that population initially, and God could have created a lot, and depending upon how many of those organisms survived the flood, and many could have, or only a few could have, that would affect the genetics today. But also, it depends upon how fast a population rebounded, how large a population got, if the population stayed large, or if it's collapsed a few times in history. It depends upon the DNA repair enzymes um, that are inherent in that created kind. So can't from first principles say, I expect this, but you can say, well, I kind of expect that. Let's go explore and, and see what we see. When we do that, we see that by and large, the data line up with the biblical expectation. So the mutation rate, population sizes, the amount of genetic diversity is all right within the right ballpark. And that's really exciting. It's not perfect because science is imperfect. But there's a lot of data pointing right at the Bible telling us that this is what we would expect and this is what we see. So, yeah, the evolutionists expect some of the things we expect. And that goes back to my uh, overlapping spheres uh, illustration I've used several times and I put into several of my, my articles. Um, the idea that both sides are predicting things, but a lot of the predictions are the same. So just because you find something that lines up with the Bible doesn't mean it proves the Bible. Just because you find something that lines up with evolution doesn't prove evolution. They're both saying the same thing about the same data, and therefore the data are equivocal. But there's other data that says, you know what? We would expect a lot more mutations, and we don't see them. Oh, but the evolutionists are going to respond, wait a second. There are genes in humans that have 
hundreds of variants. I mean, hundreds of variants in this gene. You can't get that from Adam and Eve. Um, actually, you can for a couple of reasons. One, God could have front-loaded Adam and Eve's genomes with a lot of genetic diversity. Take a gene that's very long. He could have put any number of variable letters in that gene in Adam and Eve or even in their reproductive cells. But second, there are 8 billion people in the world. There's been 4,500 or more years of mutation amongst 8 billion independent family trees. I mean, every one of those family trees could have mutations different than another family tree. And therefore, it's easy to account for all the variation we see, especially when you consider that most of the variants that are being cited are incredibly rare. They happen in one family, in one tribe, in one localized area of a country. Most all of these variations, when you find a gene with lots and lots of variation, most all of them are really, really, really rare. In other words, they're new. They have occurred after the flood and it's trivial to explain them. So the amount of genetic diversity, the distribution of diversity, uh, it all fits within the biblical model really nicely. So in humans, we have a Y chromosome Adam, actually a Y chromosome Noah, and the amount of diversity we see, the hundreds of mutations that separate the different branches of the Y chromosome family tree can easily fit into uh, creation time. We also have a mitochondrial Eve. Even if the three daughters-in-law of Noah had identical mitochondria, we could still explain the amount of diversity we see in creation time. It's not that big a deal. Now, the evolutionists looks at it, and they're not threatened by this. They know that Y chromosome Adam mitochondrial Eve are recent. Now, they try to stretch that out to maybe 100,000 or 200,000 years ago on purpose. But given real-world mutation rates, those dates shrink a lot. They become very biblical very quickly. But the autosomes are a different story. The chromosomes 1 through 22, they recombine a lot. So we have an untold number of uh, variants that God could have put into those autosomes in Adam and Eve, and recombination shuffling them, and then thousands of years of mutation following the flood, and who knows how much genetic diversity could be in the autosomes, but they have a lot. Underneath that, a little bit less diversity is the X chromosome, because the X chromosome is sort of like an autosome, is sort of like a sex chromosome, because males only carry one, and females carry two, but the two that females carry, they recombine every generation. And because of that, there's less genetic diversity in X chromosomes and autosomes. And of course, there's less genetic diversity in Y chromosomes because they don't recombine and are passed from man to man to man. The only diversity we see there is because of mutation. How much diversity do we expect in humans? I don't know. It depends on the mutation rate. And we don't know the mutation rate. We don't have a good enough handle on how fast DNA mutates because our sequencing machines aren't accurate enough. And most of the early work on DNA sequencing, they try to do it fast and they try to do it light sequencing and they didn't have the capacity to really know. And a lot of the data that we have for human DNA, it's been cultured in, in cells. Either they take a piece of a chromosome and they culture it in E. coli, or they take a, a cell sample from a person and they grow the cells. So you have in vitro mutations. Plus the sampling is happening from adult cells like spit or, or blood. And those adult cells have gone through many, 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 many uh, cell replications, which adds somatic mutations. A somatic means body. So the body cells are more mutant than the reproductive cells. We sometimes sample reproductive cells, but not usually. All I'm trying to say is that we have to put our expectations in the proper place. There's a lot of potential scenarios that will still work in the creation model. 
There are also a lot of potential scenarios of working the evolutionary model. And if you consider the concept of braided barabins that I presented um, on the show and on creation.com uh, last year, uh, you'll realize that God could have engineered as much diversity into those other kinds as, as he wished. We could have had created kinds with, with almost no diversity spread across the earth, created kinds with abundant diversity in little pockets or spread across the earth, or any combination thereof. And so, really, um, there is no prediction here. You can't ever look at genetic diversity and say, this doesn't fit the Bible. So, in the end, the biblical model has a huge range of possibilities. It's very difficult to predict what should be true in the world today based on the biblical account, because so many different possibilities fit into the biblical scenario. And I think you should be encouraged by that. You can't easily disprove the Bible. Therefore, the evolutionists can't say, ha, the Bible must be wrong. Because we get to say, hey, Mr. Evolutionist, um, what you just said fits in with the biblical story. What are you talking about? I can take your data and incorporate it onto, onto my side of the equation, and I'm perfectly happy with it. Friends, don't be discouraged. Don't be dissuaded. The Bible is real history, and the science we see still matches with what the Bible says.